welcome to Inside Remote. Hi, I'm Andre and you're listening to Inside Remote, podcast where we share stories from remote work experts and remote companies who are building new era of distributed work. This week we are talking with Ryan Singer, head of strategy from Basecamp. He has been one of the first three with Jason and David who built the original version of legendary Basecamp. Not so long ago, Ryan also published his first book called Shape Up, where he explains what Basecamp learned on shipping software products. Besides the techniques of Shape Up, we also cover many other interesting topics. Tune in and listen what Ryan has to say. Hey Ryan, welcome to Inside Remote. So to dive in, can you tell us a little bit more on how did Shape Up happen? Yeah, the way that the book happened was it has in a way it's a um it's a, it's a long backstory and it's also quite simple the simple version is is jason the founder of basecamp asked me to write it he felt like now was the time and the longer answer is the material in the book is is a is a work in progress based on the 16 years of of you know my experience and our experience together at basecamp figuring out how to build product in the best way uh, and in a way that that felt good for us you know, we we started off as a really small team. The first version of Basecamp was built just three of us mainly who were who were building it, and um, we had a lot of the the values that are in the book we already had from the very beginning. So, for example, David, uh, who is partner at Basecamp and now our CTO, he was the only programmer in the early days, and the first version of Basecamp was built with him only working ten hours a week and and doing it remotely. So. Already, that put some constraints on us from the very beginning that we needed to, you know, really be able to make a lot of progress with a smaller amount of of of, of available time, and so we really had to figure out how to, yeah, how to get further in the product and and really feel like we're getting somewhere. And there was no patience for, you know, a never-ending project or or things things running in circles and stuff like that. As we started to take on more people and as we started to grow, all those values were the same. Uh, but then you have the challenge of, well, how do you, how do you, how do you turn it into some sort of a process that you can articulate and that other people can participate in? And then we also had different types of challenges coming our way through the years. So getting uh, into maybe five years after the first version of Basecamp shipped, we were, um, building a we had a pretty challenging infrastructure project we had four different products they all had different username and password databases and we wanted to unify them into a single billing and a single sign-on and that presented a lot of product management challenges that we hadn't had before because the scope was so vast and 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 there were so many things to deal with and so some of the practices came out of that and then you know uh we we ended up totally redesigning Basecamp in 2012 and re, re, rebuilt it from scratch for Basecamp 2 and that was another big test for us. And then by the time we were building Basecamp 3 in around 2015, we had hired, you know, enough people that we were at, you know, triple or quadruple the original product team size from, from the beginning. And that is just a very different universe to be working in. And we needed to be able to better articulate and sort of better systematize the things that we had kind of been doing all along, but maybe we didn't have language for or we didn't really know how to how to talk about. So a lot of a lot of shape up came out from us finally feeling like we have the words and we we know how to have the conversations about the things that are really important that we figured out how to do and we're seeing that all of our teams are able to 
put this into practice, we think we've really figured something out here, you know? And, and then Jason pulled me aside and said, hey, I think it's a good time to share this beyond ourselves out into the industry and and that it's it's people people need this. And so I actually did a workshop before I, I wrote the book because I wanted to connect with people from other companies and see kind of what they were struggling with and, and how this was going to be relevant to them. And I was just blown away by all the struggles people have and 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 how how challenging people find it to to really make meaningful progress on the product, you know, and really feel like they're getting somewhere on the product and that the teams feel like they're they're successful and they're happy at the end of a project and they're ready to take on the next thing with 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 a with a high spirit and a good morale. I mean, that's that's something that actually isn't very common out there in the world right now. And the more I started to talk to other people, the more I kept hearing the same things. Never-ending projects, no time to think, no time to really think strategically about what's next, kind of constantly grinding on this treadmill. And uh, and we have an alternative to that, you know. There a lot of us grew up in the uh, in the time of agile when agile started off as as a new as a new wave of a new way to think, and a lot of time has gone by since that first agile manifesto. And what we see around us when people talk about agile is really some stiff frameworks that have to do with working two weeks at a time and having very long painful meetings to figure out what to do in the next two weeks. And, and, and that's not actually working well. So I'm really happy that we can kind of share our experience of a different, of a different way of working now. Talking about the agile, what is the major misconception and issue with using agile approach in most of the teams? What's the biggest issue? Well, there's a, there's a few things to start with. You can't actually finish anything meaningful in two weeks. So if you're working in a, in a situation where you're doing sprints, you simply can't build a feature end to end in two weeks, you know, and then, and then if you, if you bite off two weeks at a time, then you're, you're interrupting your progress and all of your momentum to, to have some kind of a grooming session or some sort of a planning session. And this is, this is unpleasant and doesn't work very well. And then, and then a big thing is that the way that most teams who call themselves agile today work is that they actually kind of file these these cards or these stories or these tasks, you know, into a sprint. And then these are the things you're supposed to do in the next two weeks. And then, and then you're supposed to finish them. And then you put new tasks into a new sprint and, and you go on like that. The problem is that you don't know upfront what the work actually is, you know? So the things that you think you have to do turn out to be different than, you know, what you really have to do, or the things you really have to do turn out to be more complicated than what you thought. So we talk about in the book, the difference between imagined versus discovered tasks, the work that you think you have to do up front versus the work that you actually discover you have to do after you lift open the hood and, and you get your hands dirty and you find out what is connected to what and how it really works. So sometimes we talk about this typical sort of sprint planning process as a paper shredder. You take, you take, you take a whole project and you shred it apart into separate tasks and then you give those tasks to people and you hope that it'll all come together in the end and be something meaningful that you want, right? And very often it doesn't happen. So a huge point of contrast between how we're working versus the traditional agile methods is that we're actually giving teams the whole project. We're not assigning them tasks. And they actually create the tasks because we know that they're the ones who are going to discover what the real work is as they go. The other thing is that most agile teams have some kind of a big project in front of them, and then they're going to bite off two-week chunks of that 
you know, sprint after sprint until at some point they get to the end of it. And this can very easily and naturally lead to projects that have no clear ending because you keep throwing another two weeks and another two weeks and another two weeks at them. We have a totally different way of thinking about estimation. So instead of, instead of coming up with what we want to do and then saying, how long is it going to take? And then biting off two weeks of that, we flip it around and we say, instead of how much time do we think this is going to take, we say, how much, t- how much appetite do we have for this? How interested are, how, 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 how much time do we want to spend on it? So this is a totally different mindset. So now instead of coming up with a software design and then putting a number on it, we start with a number and then we try and design some software that fits inside of that number. So if this improvement that we're considering is only worth six weeks instead of longer than that, or it's only really worth two weeks to us in terms of our investment, in terms of how meaningful we think it is, then we want to actually come up with a design that's implementable within that amount of time. So what we're going to do then is we're going to give teams enough time to actually finish something. So we work in six-week cycles, not in two-week sprints. And six weeks is long enough to actually build a whole feature and ship it without getting interrupted in the middle. And then we're not planning all of the tasks up front. We're not you know, stuffing a sprint full of, of things that you're supposed to do. Instead, we are shaping the work and defining the boundaries of what the solution is and what we're doing and what we're not doing. So the team has some protective guardrails, but within those boundaries, they have the freedom to do the creative problem solving and figure out what the right solution is. So we're giving them enough time, six weeks, we're giving them clear boundaries and, and, and freedom to figure out what the actual work is. So they're discovering the tasks themselves along the way. And, and we have a set appetite. So we know that we're actually going to be done at the end of that time. We're not just going to keep throwing another sprint at it and throwing more and more time at it. If the thing doesn't finish in the amount of time that we bet on it, then something is wrong and we don't just automatically reinvest in it. So in the book, I call, we call this the uh, circuit breaker. And this is the notion that if we're going to bet resources on an idea, then the amount that you bet should be fixed. You shouldn't automatically, you shouldn't have to start paying multiples of the amount that you bet just because it's turning out different than you thought. The fact that something gets harder doesn't make it more valuable, you know? So if if the thing that we only intended to spend six weeks on starts to, to get more and more complicated and now we're in week 12 or week 14, that doesn't make sense because there might be something else that's come up in the meantime that's much more valuable for us to be tackling or much more timely, much more urgent and relevant to what's going on right now. So so we've really got a, a clear end point in front of us. We know that we're going to be done at this point. We know that we're going to ship at this point. And we're setting up ourselves structurally to enable that so that we can actually be, we have a clear finish line in front of us all the time. A finish line that means we're actually done with the real work and not just done with with an incremental bite out of it, you know, and 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 no clear no clear ending in sight. We really can say that this is going to be done and this is going to be shipped. And if we spend this much time on it, then that's something that we can feel good about, and we can really celebrate and give each other a high five at the end of that cycle and say, "That's awesome, we got that done." What do we want to do next? A very interesting approach, especially with the boundaries given of six weeks. So, can you give any tips to teams who would like to start using shape up approach? To make sure they wrap everything in the time. Yeah, so we all have to deal with that. You know, all of us, uh, um, none of us have a crystal ball, and we can all make mistakes with 
how much time we think things are going to take and so on. The, the thing is that um, we want to be able to reflect on, on what was it that actually went wrong or what was it that was different than what we expected. And so, for example, let's say if we, if we dedicate a team, so like let's say one designer and two programmers for six weeks to build, to build a project and we expect them to actually build it and then they, they don't finish. How do we actually look at what went wrong? So it could be, it's very possible that the problem was in the shaping. So the shaping is the pre-work that we do before we make a bet of resources on a particular project. So before we actually say we're going to spend the six weeks building this thing, we have to do some kind of work to get to a concept and a problem definition and this broad outlines of a solution that we really believe is, is, is bettable and doable within that amount of time. And it's possible that, you know, we've had projects where we got a little bit rushed and, and all of a sudden the next cycle's coming up and we give the team some work that we didn't actually shape very well. And I, I use the example in, in the book of building a calendar. If you say, go build a calendar, what does that mean? You know, you could spend uh, two years building a calendar. You could spend six months building a calendar. You could build a calendar in in a week. But what what is a calendar? Is it is it is it the interfaces for for inviting someone to have a meeting with you at a certain time? You know, and then having this back and forth over email and 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 accepting the invitation and then putting it on both calendars. Is it the high fidelity interaction of of dragging the border of an event box? within a day view from this hour to that hour, you know, is it dealing with events that span multiple days on a month grid? Like there are so many different aspects to calendaring and, and, and what are we actually building and what do we focus on? If we have a limited amount of time, we have to know, let's say we can only build a 10th of a calendar in this period of time, which, which 10th is the right 10th to be focusing on. So if we say go build a calendar, that's totally unclear and that's not shaped enough. On the other hand, if we give the team a whole bunch of extremely specific tasks of go build this and build this and build this and design it exactly like this, then we're, we are just giving them tickets and we're treating them like code monkeys, which is not a fun way to work. But, but even, even, even more than that, it, it's going to blow up in our face because we can't predict what the actual tasks are in advance until we get involved with doing the real work ourselves. Right. So if we if we're too concrete and we try and specify every little task that you have to do, we're not going to be able to estimate it correctly. And it's going to turn out different than we thought anyway. So we have to figure out how to actually shape the work at the right level of abstraction where it's rough and the boundaries are there. But we can say, but but we know what we're doing and what we're not doing and where to focus and then the team still has room to figure out the individual tasks. So we can say that for this calendar, what really matters is that you can see available spaces, mostly for scheduling things that are that are at, at like an hour or more. And it's not going to be so you know it's not going to be like fine tuning down to the minute. And we only need a month view, and we don't care about aligning different people's schedules and handling invitations and and so on. Now we start to narrow down what it is, and this this gets into a you know maybe a deeper conversation about strategy and understanding what the problem is that you're trying to solve and why this calendar in this app in this circumstance only needs these particular features to be executed 
versus in a different circumstance, right? So, so, so if the team doesn't succeed, it could be because the work was poorly shaped or wasn't shaped enough, right? And then another thing that could happen is that the work could be shaped well, but the team might choose to tackle the problems in the wrong sequence. So for example, if you're building a, if you're building a new app and, uh, and you give it to a team to start, let's say that this app requires uh, authentication and you have to log in in order to use it. The team could spend a lot of time rethinking authentication, you know, or, or building authentication. Uh, but this is a, this is a solved problem. This doesn't teach you anything, right? So if you spend the first few weeks um, building some authentication thing, and let's say you try and integrate it with some other, uh, you know, ID identity thing that you have in your in your in your uh, other systems, and then and now you've you've done a whole bunch of work, but you didn't actually learn anything that was core to the domain of what you're trying to solve, right? So the the team also needs to to sequence the work of what they take on in terms of unknowns. Take the thing that's most unknown and most core, most central to the problem first, so that if something unexpected comes up, that you can adjust your plan and, and you can change what you're going to do uh, earlier in, in, in the cycle instead of later. Um, but there's another piece to this too, which is what are you actually delivering and how do you know that you're making progress? What does progress look like in the duration of that cycle? And a thing that we do that's really critical is we get to integrated running code so front end and back end integrated together doing something that you can click on as early as possible so already in maybe the first week at the end of week one of the cycle the team has something running on a staging server that you can click on that does something there's a little bit of design and a little bit of programming and they're wired together and they do something so this is very different than doing all of the high fidelity mockups, you know, all these pixel perfect mockups and then handing them over to a, to a, to a programmer. This still happens in most agile teams. It sounds like waterfall, but it's totally normal that in most agile teams, they wait for a designer, the designer creates a high fidelity mock, and then the programmer turns that into code. And then, and then that's some work that happens inside of a sprint. No, what we want to do is start with lower fidelity design that has just the affordances that we need in order to to click through it and validate that the basic idea is going to work. We don't need all the fonts and colors and style. We don't even really need the right layout in terms of what's on the top or bottom or left or right in, in the very first iteration of, of something that we're building. So we're working in vertical slices of a little bit of front end and a little bit of back end wired together to validate that this particular little part of the, of the feature or the product is going to work. Get that working on a staging server and then move on to the next thing. And, and so we're integrating very, very early and we're using running code as the proof of, of progress. These are all different things that you can kind of debug to look back on and say, what went wrong? Why didn't we finish, right? And then if you can identify where the problem was, if the problem was in the shaping, if, if, we didn't, if, if there was a rabbit hole that we, didn't, that we didn't think hard enough about, or if the team tackled things in the wrong sequence or whatever it was, or the team didn't engage with scope enough and make enough cuts along the way, whatever it was, if we have the language to talk about that and we can tease it apart from all the other things that might have gone wrong, now we're in a productive process where the next cycle, we can learn from that and then we can do something differently so that we can do better 
you know, versus if we just kind of keep working two weeks at a time, building the tasks that somebody laid out for us, nobody's learning anything. Everybody's just getting burnt out. So to double down on this, within this six weeks period, do you give the team complete independence and how do you approach communicating with the team? Yeah. So what we really want is for the team to be as independent as possible. So the ideal is that we give the team the shaped work. So somebody else does the shaping and then there's a, there's a betting process of deciding what do we actually, which projects do we want to bet on for the next cycle? Then that work goes to the team and then the team has a kickoff call with, with the person who shaped it. And, uh, that's an opportunity to ask a lot of questions and get to a point where everyone feels like they understand what this work is about and, and, and what's important about it and, and, and the logic of it. Then the ideal is that the team is, has the full risk. Well, this is actually, it's not only the ideal, it's a fact. The team is responsible and has the freedom to make decisions about how to actually realize that and turn it into a real working thing. And that means that they have latitude to make adjustments to the concept, to change the design, to work out all the thousands and thousands of little decisions that you have to make, both in the design and in the implementation. So they have total latitude and, they, and they're responsible for, for figuring it out. Now, along the way, uh, there are some, you know, Jason or myself or someone who's, who's coming at it from a, from a more strategic standpoint or, or who did the shaping work is available as a support to the team. But that's different than, than being a manager of the team. So the team is self-managed. But there is support available to them, uh, and and if you know if Jason is curious about how things are going, he can of course peek his head in and and take a look, and then he might have feedback or he might not. But the there isn't there's a huge difference between having someone who's who is available to you to help sometimes that you might pull in, versus having a gate or a formal review step that 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 puts work into a queue and makes people wait. That's the thing that we don't want is we don't want to have any gates or any places where work has to pile up into a queue and then everyone is sitting around because something has to happen before they can proceed. So we don't have any type of a formal review like that, but we do have a very kind of informal back and forth where, like I said, Jason might pop in or the team might might raise a question about how to make a trade-off or something like that. But the team is actually totally empowered to make the calls as they see fit. And you do this on calls or through Basecamp app? How do you communicate with your team? So we think it's extremely important that everyone works asynchronously by default. This is huge. Um, the main thing about working asynchronously is it gives everybody their time back. You know, every time you have to synchronize, you destroy everybody's day because now everybody has to stop what they're doing, regardless of the flow that they're in, regardless of the momentum that they've built up. They all have to stop so that you can meet. And so this is very, very costly, both in the first order in terms of, you know, add up the hours of everybody and, and, of, and the heads and multiply them, you know, and that's all that time spent in that meeting. It's even more costly on the second order, which is the momentum that you destroy, you know, by, by making somebody stop and change gears and have a meeting and then, and then have to spin up again. So, so we really try to avoid that. So most of our communication is happening asynchronously. And we do not have any kind of a daily stand-up. We don't have any kind of a weekly meeting. There's nothing that is regularly scheduled in terms of meetings. And that's really important because you can't predict 
when is the right moment that people need feedback or need assistance or when they need to to put their heads together the work that they're trying to to deal with the the interdependencies in the product the 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 way that the the things are wired together the way that problems appear in the design those things aren't spaced out on a grid they're not like a they're not regular like a crystal they are irregular like 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 the anatomy of a of an animal or a skeleton or something you know that there's you you have to pull on a joint and then see what else comes along when you pull on it you know and then you figure out where two things are connected right and there's one area that's very difficult and you have to really deal with a lot of problems and another area that you solve immediately right so sometimes you need status after one day because the task that you thought was going to be difficult turns out to be easy it didn't have a lot of interdependencies with other things and you're already ready to talk about what to do next after a single day other times the thing that you're working on requires more depth and maybe you know 4 days 5 days go by before you're ready to to talk with other people about 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 what to do next so so the teams have a very fluid um unscheduled way of interacting with each other in every base camp project that the team so every team is working out of a base camp project for that project in that cycle and they have a campfire room which is a chat just a chat room that they can use and they will bounce back and forth in that and there's no expectation that if you say something someone has to respond you know immediately so there, there's asynchrony there but there's the possibility as we all know from chat that if you happen to be available that you can you can quickly knock something out together um, and then we also have everything in base camp has this ability to comment on it and then it, it it we have a notification channel that makes it really easy to to see where they where the new discussion is and jump straight to that so as the team is discovering tasks things that they dis- discover they have to do they're adding to do items into the base camp project and then anytime a question arises or there's a little bit of work to share like hey i got this ui wired up i think this is ready to connect to the controller like what do you think screenshots or or little code snippets or just discussion can go in the comment right on that to do item and then the right people get notified and it's all asynchronous so a ton of conversation can happen that way and then if we do need to workshop something if we have to troubleshoot something if if there's a difficult decision to be made uh, then everybody can say hey okay you know what let's get on a call and then that is ad hoc it's specific to that circumstance that okay now we should have a call when's everybody available and then and then and then you can you can get on a on a zoom or 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 whatever to to hash something out yeah makes sense talking with one of the founders who work as a remote team mentioned they have a rule that after the slack messages on one topic they get to hop on a call to solve the issue otherwise it is too costly to lose the momentum Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. It it's all about escalating to synchronous. Start asynchronous by default and then you escalate escalate to synchronous when when you need it. So, talking about the betting part, you also mentioned in a book that you don't have any backlogs. How do you approach betting concepts with your team? Yeah, so at our current size, we have we have two what we call core product teams, which is, you know, one designer and two programmers. And by the way, the 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 people on those teams is mixed up every cycle so they're not fixed teams it's it's um we have a pool of designers and programmers and then we we um you know mix them together into into teams like that every cycle is there any reason for that uh i think the question would be would be, would, it, would there be any reason to fix them because f- 
fixing them is additional structure, you know? Um, uh, and, uh, the thing is that, um, different problems call for different skill sets, you know, and people are available at different times in different ways, according to their vacation schedule or being sick or who knows, you know, and also, um, people have, uh, somebody's better at JavaScript. Somebody is more comfortable with a certain piece of the back end that has to do with billing or whatever, you know, I mean, there's, um, so it's, it's, it's really nice to be able to sort of fit the right people to the right problem, you know, and, and combine them together like that. And also the more that they, the more that you mix people together, the more exchange that they have, and then the more possibility they have to learn from each other, to share knowledge, to share experience. Uh, it's, it's, you get so many fantastic things, I think from, from rotating people around, it's much better than, than having people who think something is their territory and, 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 and getting sort of, you know, digging their, digging their toes deeper and deeper into the earth in one place. It's, it's good to have that a lot of movement and a lot of, a lot of exchange happening. So different problems really need different skill sets sometimes. I feel like I interrupted you. Uh, let's go back a bit. Yeah. So for that, we, we were talking about um, how does the betting happen and, and how do we do it without backlogs and so on. So, so um, the, we have these at our current size, we have these two teams every cycle that are doing core, core work on the, on the web-based product. We also have an iOS team and an Android team, but they, they shape, they, they shape their own work and make their own bets. For the most part, they have to deal with some kind of ripple effects from what the core product team is doing, but but that's kind of another discussion. Um, so, but me, mainly, we're we're talking about how do we figure out what the two core teams are going to do, and at our current size right now, we have enough people that um, myself and Jason, for example, can can be doing the shaping work on a separate track from the building work that's happening. So, in a, in a six week cycle. I could be completely dedicated to just thinking about what we might want to do next because the teams are, are, are building something and they're, and they're running autonomously and, and they don't need a whole lot of support. So when we were smaller, this wasn't the case. We needed to kind of alternate between when we were doing shaping work and when we were building, you know? So I just wanted to call that out. This, this, there is a factor there to your size, whether you can do these things in parallel or whether you have to alternate them. But in either case, we have to we have to do some we have to do this shaping work before we bet on a project otherwise we're going to pay the we're going to pay the price this is just a i think this is just a fact and um we're just putting words on it um i think this is a you know one way of explaining it is that you know if you want to make an omelet uh, an omelet starts with raw eggs and it doesn't matter what technique you use to make an omelet like it always starts with raw eggs and work projects start with some sort of definition of what the work is, you know, and there, this, this step happens whether or not we have names for it and a specific structure and whether we allocate time for it or not, we have to actually spend that time to figure out what is it that we are going to do? What is it that we want to get out of it? What do we not want to do? How much time do we want to spend? What risks are there? What are the things that could go wrong? And what are we going to do to improve our odds so that this raw work uh, is going to successfully turn into, you know, cooked work or like real work, you know? Um, so that's, that's shaping and that, that happens in some form, whether you, whether you sort of acknowledge it or not. And so um, this shaping work happens and then the output of, of the shaping process is a potential bet. 
it's it's some work that we've we've done our best to take away the risk. We've done our best to set boundaries. And now this is something that we feel like it's shaped enough that we could bet on it if we wanted to. So then that work is what we bring to the betting table. So the betting table is a call that happens between a very, very small number of people. And these are the people who are in a position in the company to allocate resources. So these are the people who get to decide who does what, right? And so at Basecamp, that's Jason and David. They're the two partners. And then um, the way things are set up right now, um, I'll probably, I'll be there in, in, in some cases. And then we have a senior, very senior programmer named Jeff who will be there in some cases. And just to round out the discussion and, and to bring in different different ideas. And what we're looking at at this betting table, this is a this is like maybe one phone call or video chat that happens in the cool down between two cycles. So we have a two-week cool down between cycles. And what's going to happen is we're going to have three or four or something like that ideas on the table that somebody has personally brought to the table. So we're not looking at a queue. There's no system that's telling us what to do next. There's only people who are making judgments about what to do next, because this is strategy. What to do next is a strategic question. And we don't want to just look at some old list of stuff every time we want to know what should we do next. We want somebody to actually do some thinking and look around and see what's going on in the world and what's going on inside the company and what is contextually meaningful right now, and then bring something to the table and advocate for it. So we're going to have three or four things that 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 we're looking at at the table and and we're going to discuss the merits of is this the right time to do that or not and is it is it shaped enough and is it is it strategically the right thing to do and are the right people available that type of a conversation is going to happen. And then if we see something that we think is meaningful to do then 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 we'll say okay let's do that for the next cycle. And we only bet one cycle at a time. And that way even if we might have all kinds of ideas about what we sort of intend to do in the following cycle, but we don't know what's going to actually happen in the next cycle. And we have no idea what new idea we might come up with tomorrow, right? So we want to give ourselves maximum optionality, the most possible freedom to react to the better idea or the new information that's going to come in, you know, over the course of the next cycle. And then when the next cycle is done, then we have another cool down, we have another betting table, and then we can we can look at a few options that we think are worth considering and then pick what to do next. Nice. And mentioning the betting part. So how do you approach the product strategy? Do you get to pick what is on your team's mind on that moment or you try to think more long term on your product? So that's a huge question. How do you approach strategy? Right? I mean, we could talk for hours about what what what, what is what is that really asking? That is a huge question. And uh very often, I think people are asking for some kind of a framework or an answer. <laughs> and but strategy strategy is not algorithmic. if 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 you 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 don't you don't you don't have a formula that tells you what to do. Real strategy is based on on having some sort of a fuzzy, unclear idea of what you think is important and what you think is going on in the world, you know? and and then, and then having surprises come up at you, new information you didn't expect, or a sudden new idea comes up in the shower or whatever, you know, new information is coming in all the time. And, and then there's just a kind of a lot of back and forth among 
all kinds of people in the company about what they think is going on and what we should do next and so on. And, and sometimes, sometimes we'll do some formal work because we feel like we need to set some clearer direction, you know? And so, for example, there's been times in the past where I felt confused about what to do next, or I felt like I was in the dark and I didn't know, I didn't know where to turn to strategically. So I, I, I reached for a tool that was going to help me to get more clarity. So for example, I did a series of jobs to be done interviews a few year, a couple of years ago. And I learned a lot about where people are struggling, what's important to our customers, what our, our customers who are in very different industries have in common with each other, um, where our tool is working and competitors are not, and what, what is even in the competitive set. Um, I learned a lot from that. And then I got all kinds of ideas again. Then I was sort of overwhelmed with ideas about what to do next, you know? So then, then you are in a phase where, where you have a sort of surplus of ideas and, and a deficit of time, you know what I mean? And then you have other periods where you have, you have too much time and not enough clear ideas, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a, it's a big shifting organic thing. So I think that, um, the, the way that I think of it is that there's a kind of, there's a sort of, um, it's a little bit like weather, you know, among the, among the more senior people in the company, there's certain things that you're, that you're talking about day after day that are sort of becoming themes of, of where, what you think is meaningful and what you think is important or what you're worried about. There's certain data points that you might be looking at that are informing the conversation. There's things that happen and there's, but it's not quite clear what to do exactly, but there's a certain conversation going on. And then there's the challenge you know, I know that six weeks from now, another cycle is going to start and we need to, we need to have work to do. Right. So how do we turn the things that we're aware of and the conversations that we're having in this sort of cloudy, misty, you know, slightly abstract sense, how do we turn that into something that's a little bit more concrete that we can act on? And I think that's the task of strategy is to figure out what are the things that we can actually do based on our reading of this, of these weather patterns, you know, and that, um, and that, that's really what the shaping process is about. That's where we need to shape work into actionable projects. And so, for example, we might be getting a lot of customer requests about a certain thing. Like, actually, this is where the calendar story comes from. We were getting a lot of requests from customers to please build a calendar into Basecamp 3. And we didn't really know what that meant. And so uh, I used that time and and um, we have a couple people in, in the company who um, help out with customer interviews from time to time. So in this case, I think it was Chase in support who helped out and he was interviewing some customers who were requesting the feature. And we were doing some research to better understand what, where, where the struggle is and, and what the problem is so that we could sort of set some requirements from the demand side. And then we came to a point where we, we did understand the problem better than we had in the past. And you know, cycle after cycle went by where we were hearing about this thing, please build a calendar, but we didn't have any idea how to do it in a way that wasn't going to be a six-month project. And we did not have the appetite for a six-month project. So this this question was kind of in the air, like, hmm, I wonder if there's something we could do about that, but I don't really know what to do. And I don't want it to be a big, hairy project. So we decided to do this research, you know, and then we did the research and we got to a definition of the problem that we liked enough to act on and where we could see how to shape up a solution that was only going to be a six week project that, and, and we felt comfortable with that appetite. 
And then we decided, okay, this is a good time to do it. You know, so it's, it's a, it's a lot of back and forth. It's a very fluid thing. Um, I think it has, I, I think we could have, we could probably talk for, you know, a whole day just about trying to, trying to, to define what it is to do strategy and, and, and all of that. It's a big discussion. Of course. I do love analogy with wider though. So diving more into product management, do you have product managers and how do you operate? Yeah. So we do not have any product managers here. And we don't have any project managers either. And very often those two kind of blur into each other. You know, a lot of people with a product management title actually spend their time doing a lot of time management and project management. And, um, but uh, no, we, we, the way, the way that I spell it out in the book is I think that there are these, there's these steps that need to happen for work to get done, you know, and there's, there's the shaping that has to happen to define what the boundaries are of the work. There's the betting that has to happen to figure out what our commitments are and what we're doing and what we're not doing. And then the teams have to apply different principles to actually uh, take over responsibility for that work, uh, deal with the tasks that they discover, scope out the work into different parts that they can build out independently and finish independently and, uh, and, and sequence the work in terms of the unknowns and the knowns. Those are all different practices that need to happen. And I don't actually think we need a product manager do that you know uh, but those functions need to happen so so some some companies have a person that's that's that has the title product manager and that person might be let's say responsible for shaping um and then and then that person might um they might be responsible for a mixture of sort of combining a strategic understanding with some design skill with some technical literacy of how the systems work and what's possible and not possible technically, and then putting together proposals for what to do, and then maybe bringing that up a level to to someone who can do resource allocation to make the bets, and then being a support to the team that can happen, you know. But it, it doesn't happen. It doesn't have to be that way, you know. In our case, um, I'm not really a product manager. That's not my title. And Jason's not a product manager. He's the CEO and 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 founder. Um, but, but the way that we're structured, you know, Jason is the last word on product and he's very, very interested in, 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 in what's happening cycle by cycle and which projects we're doing. And he's really deeply involved in that. So, um, and, and, and we're giving the team so much autonomy to self-manage, to actually realize the, the work and, 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 and implement it and make all the 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 creative decisions and problem solving decisions and trade-offs that have to happen to actually finish that work on time so so we don't we don't need that uh, discrete role for that exactly but all those functions need to happen so i think that's a question for each company sort of these are if we can tease apart it's it's you know it's kind of like a software problem you know you have to you have to factor the code out into different responsibilities right and, and different 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 model objects or or different methods or whatever or different classes um we're doing the same thing here with 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 what is sometimes called quote unquote product management and saying well what are the functions that actually have to take place and then as a company we just have to figure out where those functions happen in a way that 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 makes sense for us and figuring out where this function happen and having people doing multidisciplinary roles how do you approach hiring do you have any patterns you use for spotting right people for your team? Yeah, so we want we want people within the teams to be making trade-offs, which is very different from being a code monkey or a grunt worker who just checks takes a task and works on it and then completes it. 
you know? So, um, so this is really, really valuable that, that the people are, are not only empowered to make trade-offs, but also expected to use that empowerment to actually make calls about what is a nice to have, what is a must have, what deserves more time, what deserves less time, how far do we go implementing this versus that and so on. So we really want the teams to be really engaged like that. What we found is that, um, and this is this is me speaking from a little bit of a of a of an arm's length distance because I haven't been the one to do the hiring for for our designers and our programmers. That's not my role. So, but I, I've I've seen it I've seen it and I've I've um, I've you know been part of a lot of discussions about it. So I can tell you what I know from from the outside, which is that um, we seem to have the most success actually hiring more junior people who haven't been kind of indoctrinated in a different way of working. And, uh, and we, we, we are very careful to hire people who are good writers, because if you're not a good writer, you won't be able to succeed in an environment that's very asynchronous. So, so, so more junior so that there's a bit more, you know, the, the, the brain is a little bit more plastic, you know, <laughs> like there's more, there's more possibility for, 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 for rewiring the neurons, you know, and, um, uh, good, good, good writers. And, um, uh, and, and we, 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 we look for people who are a bit more, um, generalist. So, um, for designers, the designers actually need to be able to, to run, to run the code um on their on their machines and and make commits to the source code so all of our designers are actually implementing their own views of course rails makes that really easy you know as long as you know as long as you can manage html and css you can make commits to the view code in a rails app and that is a fantastic thing and um if you're working in an environment that's more like single page app like react you're going to pay a huge tax for that a very, very, very high painful tax there because you're making it more difficult for designers to get involved in, in the actual code. You're creating a barrier there. So, um, and now I've seen some teams nonetheless have fantastic results applying the shape up process because you still have to deal with all the same problems at the end of the day, you know? Um, so it doesn't change. The problems are, are still the same. Um, but, um, but the, the speed with which you can you can you can loop through you know the integration from design to programming, and, and is is it's incredible you know if 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 your designers can actually get in the code and you're using um it doesn't have to be Rails but more of an HTML over the wire approach you get a 10x productivity boost and you don't have to pay those taxes so that is um, that's fantastic you know so but but you know hiring wise. Um, we're looking for people who, who who bring those skills together. I see you guys have a very unique approach about hiring. I especially love the part where you say you prefer generals and more junior people. So the current mantra of remote team is more to hire experienced remote people with proven track record. And like you mentioned, it is easier to learn new behaviors than change ones. Yeah, and and I think it's really important to to work with people based on taste more than ability. Taste is not something that you can train. Um, but, uh, it, people can gain, people can improve their skill and they can improve their experience with, with how they execute things. But, um, the taste, you know, the ability to, to have the eye for, for what's good and what's not, and, and to be able to make judgments and stuff like that, 
that's um I think that's something that's very, very difficult to train. So it, it's better to have someone who's very junior with good taste than someone who has a lot of experience, but but um, but you you might not trust to make the right trade-offs. It would be very interesting to hear. How do you know if somebody has a taste? How do you learn that with candidates? Yeah, I, I think it's difficult to 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 turn it into a formula, but um, a lot of it. A lot of it happens through exchange, you know. I think I think a lot of this stuff with taste is in your gut more than it is in a in an algorithm, and uh, I think it's all right. <laughs> I think it's all right to use our guts sometimes, you know. I think guts are undervalued actually. Um, uh, and then, of course, you see it. You have different opportunities to 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 interact with somebody in different ways through the hiring process. Like you, you see you see the cover letter of, you know, so we, we, we pay more attention to the cover letter than the resume because the resume is sort of a standardized structure and who really knows the story behind why they worked where they worked, you know, but the cover letter is a free form open format that they can use however they want. So it reveals a lot about the choices that they make, right? What are the things in the cover letter that they chose to talk about versus the things they didn't chose to talk about? And, uh, how well what what's their writing style and 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 what's the tone in it and you know there's so many things that you can learn just from a cover letter and then and then you can go deeper to look at the work and and with with design work in particular it's very challenging because i'm speaking more from the design side because that's the world i know a little bit better than the programming side but um from the design side it can be difficult sometimes to judge somebody's work because the final product is is uh is is a synthesis of a lot of people's work. Do you know what I mean? It's not just one per it's not. So how do you judge that? Right. So, so then you want to get into a situation where you can talk about, about decisions they made along the way or, um, why something is in there. Why is something in the design and, and how did it get there? So it's, it's much more about process than it is about just looking at a final product. And then, uh, whenever we have people at the sort of the last stage, when we've whittled it down to the final candidates, then very often we'll uh, contract them to do some sort of a short project that demonstrates their skill all, you know, in, in a, in an apples to apples way, because when you're comparing everyone's past work, it's hard to really make a direct comparison. But if you, ta if you give them a short task and say, Hey, come up with a design for a feature that does X, Y, Z in Basecamp, And don't worry that you don't have all the proper domain knowledge and don't worry that you have the research. Just, just, just show us what you would do and then kind of defend it with some rationale, right? And then, and then, and then by looking at that, you can see how they think. And, and it, it doesn't matter if, if it's really the best solution per se, maybe you would have made a different choice, but if you can tell by the quality of thinking, um, how deep they go, you know, and, and I think you can learn a lot from that. Talking about team, how do you approach innovation and maintain the innovation in remote teams? How do you compensate for asynchronous work and how do you compensate water cooler chat and in-person discussions working remotely? Yeah, I actually think that that is a, you, you have to pay, a, you, everything is trade-offs and you always have to pay a price for the, for the, for the good things that you get. And um, I think that's the price of remote working is that you, you lose that. You really do. You don't, you don't get a lot of spontaneity. You don't get that, that unexpected conversation where you both go to the kitchen at the same time. And then you, before you know it, you're talking about, 
you know, this feature you're working on and then, and then you get a totally different idea about it. And then, ah, you know, that it's so fantastic when that happens. And, and I, I notice it because we have these all company meetups. Everybody flies into Chicago together. You know, I think twice a year we do it. And that happens, you know, when you're in person and you see, you see the contrast, you know, it really, it happens. And, um, uh, I think it's, I think, I think it simply is a, is a, you lose that when you work remotely and, um, you lose the, the unexpected serendipitous part of it. You know, the, the best thing that I've seen that can be a substitute is to, um, make an effort to schedule, um, to schedule one-on-one video calls with different people and, uh, with no agenda, just, um, just, uh, just one-on-one with this person at this time. And then, um, things will come up in, and that, that is effect. It's basically like you're scheduling bumping into each other in the kitchen, you know, and it's not the same thing. It's, it's definitely not the same thing, but it is an open space that isn't structured where who knows what can come out of it. And I have had really fantastic um, conversations with people in this, just in these one-on-ones over Zoom, you know, just a video chat that that totally changed where my head was for the next few months because of an idea that came out of that or a piece of information that I that I didn't know that I heard, you know. So so I think that's the best sort of, um, that's the best that I've seen for, for filling that gap. This is indeed one of the biggest issues and many teams out there are tackling and trying to solve this issue. I'm personally very much looking forward to this part to see whether we can compensate the in-person time better than we do with existing tools. This is why I believe in-person meets with teams are so still undervalued for many teams. Yeah, for sure. And you you get so much efficiency um, out of the remote setup that um, it pays for more meetups, you know, like your, your, your productivity gains are so much that, that I think that, um, it's, it's also important to, to feel really comfortable with, with spending those gains from time to time. So in addition to the company meetups, uh, I I just flew to Chicago, uh, for, I basically had, I think, was it, I basically had like one three hour session with Jason, three or four hour session in person. And, it was totally worth flying to Chicago for that one day, just randomly. It wasn't part of a meetup. It wasn't part of anything. It was just like, hey, let's spend some time, you know? And and then I, I bumped into a few other people who were there and we had a really deep session. And uh, and we, we, so all of the teams here sometimes organize their own, they're called mini meetups. And, uh, you know, so everybody on the iOS team will all go somewhere or, or whatever. And, and those seem to be really valuable too. We do have, we, uh, sorry, I, we, we, I just remembered we do have one, one feature in Basecamp that, that it doesn't exactly touch this point, but it touches the question of sort of overall awareness of what everyone is doing that, that you can easily lose in a remote team. Um, it's called automatic check-ins. And so we have this thing where Basecamp automatically asks everybody at the end of the day, what did you work on today? Or what have you worked on? And it it's not strictly about today. It, you you can answer it for the last couple of days, or you can you can answer it in the morning about yesterday. There's some fluidity there, but basically, um, it it allows everybody to just write a short summary of what they've been doing, and it's it's not a one on one connection, and it's not where these new ideas are sparking, but it is cross pollinating 
knowledge throughout the whole company about what people are doing and what's going on. So it, it, it at least gives you that kind of ambient awareness of what everybody's working on and what's happening. And that's been, that's been really valuable. Great. So last question, Ryan, what are your top three favorite products? Yeah. Um, I, I love the iPad pro. I, I use the, I, I use a, um, the, not the big, big one, the, uh, I think it's like 10 or 11 inch one. Um, uh, I use that like crazy with the Apple pencil and notability. And I just love that for, for, for doing sketching and, and for thinking things and, and, and I'll, I'll write like free, like with handwriting, you know, if I'm, if I'm working out a concept and I use that thing like crazy, it's just fantastic. I, I love I love the, 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 the iPad and the, and the, I actually wrote the whole book shape up on an iPad. Yeah. And I did, um, I wrote it on an iPad and I, um, I, I did all the illustrations on the iPad as well. And uh, I, I just love it. It's just an awesome platform. Um, so that's been, that's been like probably my favorite, you know, software product lately. I'm actually quite pleased with zoom. Um, which I think everybody's been catching on, you know, more and more people I see are, are, are using it now. It has some really weird, there's a couple super goofy things about it. Um, UI wise, but, um, but, uh, but it's been really reliable and, you know, working remote, having, having like a, a video option that doesn't suck that actually works every time. is like huge, you know what I mean? So that's, that's been really nice, you know? <laughs> Yeah, who would have thought reliability for audio calls will be so big 10 years ago, huh? Yeah. The other thing I've been enjoying software-wise is um I've been really uh I've been really interested in what the Economist has been doing lately. Um they they have an app on the iPad and the iPhone um that combines the content from the weekly magazine with with this this new this new daily content that they used to call espresso. And now it's called like daily something like, uh, but it's, it's basically like a, a micro edition of the economist that's, that's just designed for daily consumption. So it's much shorter. It's only like four pieces. They're literally like two or three paragraphs each. And there's a quick wrap up of everything that happened in, in, in the last day. And it's just really interesting from a, it's, it's really well implemented design wise, the build quality seems to be good. It, it always works. And uh, it's a really unique design and it's a unique content format. And uh, it's just rare to see somebody kind of pull all those things together, you know, good execution, good design, content, writing, and in a, in a new format. Um, I've been really impressed by that. Ryan, thanks again for coming to Inside Remote. Where can people find you? Our best place is on Twitter. I'm RJS on Twitter. If you like this episode and you like Inside Remote, you can subscribe in any podcast app so you make sure you don't miss next episode. Also, by giving us a review on iTunes or on any other podcast app, it will help us spread the word about remote work even further. Thanks a lot and take care until next time.